Welcome. I'm Beth Shanker, the host of The Big Schmear, a podcast about Jewish food. My podcast covers topics as diverse as the latest Jewish food trends to Jewish food history. I'll be talking with chefs, restaurant owners, cookbook authors, farmers, food critics, and lots of people in between. Please visit my website where you can download the podcast and see recipes shared by some of my guests. You can find me at thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. I'm thrilled to be with Joan Nathan, cookbook author and Jewish food expert extraordinaire. Let me tell you a little about her before we jump into a conversation. Joan Nathan is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and other publications. She's the author of 11 books, including Jewish Cooking in America and The New American Cooking, both of which won both the James Beard Awards and the International Association of Culinary Professionals, IACP, awards. Please check out her newest book, King Solomon's Table. I'd like to welcome back my guest, Joan Nathan, to share some more stories from her cookbook. So, Joan, we were you were flipping through the, the cookbook and <laughs> mentioned that there might be a story or two that you could share, and so I'd love to hear some of the stories from the book. Well, one story, Mimi Sheraton talked about a recipe called Schritzlach, and they were blueberry buns, but she wrote this book on a thousand things to eat before you die, and Schritzlach was one of them. And I looked up Schritzlach, and I learned that it was an oblong bun with lots of blueberries in it, and it was the iconic Jewish dish of Toronto, Canada. So I went and I called this guy that I know who works at the James Beard Foundation, Mitch Davis, and I said, "Did you? he's from Toronto, did you grow up with Schritzluck? And he said, yes, and it was horrible. <laughs> so, and he said that it had blueberry pie filling, which was invented in the 50s. So that what happened was this woman named Ann Kaplansky came from southwest Poland in the 20s, um, she was poor. She became a baker. And one of the seasonal recipes was a blueberry bun because Toronto was an English town. And it was just like what she, her mother had made in Poland. And it was oblong, and you put the blueberries in it. You closed it with your hand. It was sort of like a pocket pastry. And you put a little bit of sugar on top, and you baked it. But once blueberry pie filling was invented... And they, and the, the, the this uh, I forget the name of the bakery was sold. They added blueberry pie filling instead of the fresh blueberries that grew near Toronto as they grew in Southwest Poland. So people ate this dish, and even though the blueberry pie filling was in, they probably thought it was modern. And people didn't have taste back then anyway. So people <laughs> would eat them, and they still eat them. Uh, in in Toronto, whenever you went away for the weekend, you'd always bring blueberry buns. The way we would bring maybe bagels, but th- they they probably brought day bagels too. But this was this was Toronto Jewish. So while I was testing the recipe, literally testing it, this young girl that I know from San Francisco walks into my house, and she looks at what I'm making, and she says, "That looks just like what my grandma made." And I'd never, and I've written, I've been studying Jewish food for a long time. I'd never even heard of these blueberry buns. She said, but my grandmother's recipe was better. 
So we made them according to her grandmother's recipe, who also, she came just after the Holocaust, but she had been hidden during the Holocaust. So I looked up where her town was and where the other t woman's town was, 30 miles away from each other. Oh, my God. And then uh, her mother showed me something that was a memoir of someone who went through the Holocaust who was talking about blueberry buns, oblong pastries with sugar on top. And a few things I discovered. I realized that this was something that was of the, the region of Southwest Poland. Southwest Poland were a lot of poor Jews and a lot of small shtetl-like towns. As soon as the Nazis came in, because these were religious Jews, they wiped them out. So I thought, well, first of all, have these women not left one hidden, the other one left earlier, um, th these would have been lost forever. But, you know, I also thought about music and culture mm -hmm. and all these things, not just because of the Holocaust, but with so many horrible inhumanities from man to man throughout history, all the culture that's lost. Right. And that, you know, and, and so I, I felt in a way that it was beshert that I found, because it's a really good recipe. Um, maybe you could talk about, and you've, you've touched on this for sure in our conversation, what you think Jewish food looks like today. And in that same frame of mind, um, do you feel like there are Jewish food trends happening? And what should we be on the lookout for? Well, I think this is the moment for Jewish food. Um, I think that it's kind of ironic. A lot of people don't like the politics of Israel, but they like Israeli food. So I always say that sort of food trumps politics. And um, that's what's happening. But also, I also call, call it the Atalengi effect, that here these two a Palestinian and an Israeli chef in London makes wonderful food, and it's you know mostly East, uh, um, Middle Eastern. And then you know Mike Solomonov came along, and you know, and I think you know I've been writing about Jewish food for a long time. And in fact, Atalengi told me that he had taken my first cookbook, The Flavor of Jerusalem, when he wrote the Jerusalem cookbook. He did not know who I was or anything. And that's the book that he cites all the time. Really? And then we met, because I was doing, like you're doing with me, a Q&A with him. And we've been friends ever since. So, but he's, you know, he is, it was the right moment, the right time. And it's happening all over the country. I don't know if it's happening here in Chicago, but I just was in, you know, I'm on book tour. So I've been traveling all over the place. I was at Shia in New Orleans for dinner. It's an Israeli restaurant in New Orleans. I've been there several times. I've been to just a, a few days ago. It was at a place called Mamala's, which is like a deli, but upscale deli in Boston. And then I was at a place called Tate, which is a breakfast place that is packed. And, and, and the only way you would know that it was Israeli-owned was there a few, again, emblematic recipes like um, sabich in bread that they, they make it, which is um, 
a hard-boiled egg and um, uh, eggplant, and it's a street foo of Iraq. And then they have um, three different kinds of shakshuka and at this little place. So you... And where is this place? It's, uh, they, well, there are a lot of them. There, there, uh, there some must be five of them in the Boston area. Oh. It was packed, absolutely packed. And then I was in uh, Portland, and there was this little Israeli street food place called Shalom Ya'al. And it, it was okay. It wasn't great. But it, would, it had, you know, Israeli foods. And then, of course, all over New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what's here, but there, there's Balabusta. There's Taboon. You know, and, and, the, and we're trying to get... I can't tell you how many restaurateurs in Washington ask me to find a chef. Really? who could make Israeli food. So that seems to be, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that's kind of the trend right now in oh, Jewish food. Oh, absolutely. Is Israeli food. Absolutely. Looking for but the chickpea ne- flour and, uh, and, and pomegranates, th- all those kinds of things are, are the Part of stuff. it, yeah. right. And I think that the reason that my book has been so successful is that I'm going a step further. I'm talking about diaspora food. So I'm going all around the world looking for these foods that are easy, that are good. You know, easy is one of an important thing for the next generation. And they're loving it. I mean, I I get so many emails from young people and old people. And I I was really, when I wrote it, I, I was very insistent that we do this introduction. I spent a long time on the introduction. And the editor, my editor at first said oh you've got to shorten and shorten and then she said you know what we've got to put this in and all the reviews have been they're so happy I, I did this introduction because I think people don't they, they don't put things into to concepts or into the place historical right. perspective and you know I tried to do I mean look I didn't do everything but I did as much as I could and I think people like it well, you gave you gave the recipes context. You gave people a way to explore the recipes right. and select recipes to use with with some background, which I which I also appreciated. I thought it I thought it added a richness to the rest of the book, right. which wouldn't have been there. Do you think of yourself as as a Jewish food archivist? And if so, do you feel like that's? Or I should say. It seems to me that mm-hmm. that that's a really important role to have right now, particularly when people can just go, oh, you know, I've got some eggplant in the house, and they go online and they find a recipe, but there's none of that other context there. Right, and and a lot of it is, is pretty superficial. So I love, I, I can show you in my email list things because I've been traveling so much, I haven't been able to get to my books, but... I'm get every day I get emails from people that have read my book and they want me to find these hidden recipes these that they've lost or lost recipes and um, when I do my next book my editor wants me to do a sort of a big book of updated recipes that I've been doing all these years because every cookbook writer or every chef they're constantly updating recipes so that when people are looking for authentic old recipes, 
you know, what is authentic? I'm not sure there is such a thing as authentic because food is always changing just as people are always changing. But I, I think that food is changing more now than it ever changed because there's more, you know, everybody wants the new. And authentic, I don't know, I just, I, I think that people are saying, I want to taste the food of my past, and that's authentic food. Then they taste it, and it's not so good because we're better cooks now. Right. I mean, it's kind of ironic. Everybody's, you see all these people out for, coffee houses are very hot now, Go out for coffee and the different sweets that they get with the coffee or just breakfast foods, breakfast places. Um, and yet there are people cooking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are, a lot of them. Well, I want to be cognizant of your time, and I guess the only thing I would ask you is if there is one other story that you would like to share from your cookbook, um, and then maybe we just end on that note. Okay, well, let me just see. How about the uh, the Yemenite Shabbat dish? Oh, that would be nice. Because that's really one of the early, early foods. So when I was doing this book, I was really intrigued, and I'm always intrigued with the Yemenites, because the Yemenites were separated from the rest of the Jews for millennia. And they, so that some people feel that Yemenite food is the purest Jewish food. And of course, there was one dish that they all made, which was a chicken soup. And they serve it with three kinds of spices. Most people today will only do this one spice combination because that's how things are going. Um, there's a hilba, which has got um, fenugreek in it. And then there's uh, hawaiage, which is one kind of spice combination. And then tsug, which is a really spicy combination. And you make this soup, which is really what the main course is. You, uh, the first time I ever had it, I was in Jerusalem. There, I was very, very young. I was m working for the mayor of Jerusalem. And I don't know how I got involved with this family their name was Sadok and they were jewelry makers they were very well known in Jerusalem and the uh, the um, patriarch of the family invited me for um, it must have been Shabbat dinner originally and I went to their house we all sat on the floor they were all dressed in their long garb and you know beautiful side locks and beautiful jewelry that they had made and uh, actually, just last week, you should see it, there has been a wonderful article on finding the, the Jews in 1901. It was in Haaretz last week. I can forward oh, it to you. okay. Anyway, so, and I went there for dinner. What they did was they had a Shabbat flatbread, which made sense, because when you talk about the, the Sabbath breads, they were always, they were, 12 shoe breads, 12 round breads that were in the Temple of Jerusalem. Well, these are very similar to what the Yemenites made. And you would dip the bread into this um, soup. And the only thing that was post-Columbian, there were two things. One was tomatoes and one was potatoes. But before that, it was just really, it was, it was a clear soup with lots of herbs in it, with some chicken, maybe turnips or greens hmm. and it was really good and with all these combination of spices it was fabulous and they the only other thing would be maybe pomegranates and all kinds of fruits and people would you know sit there and eat and I just 
became so interested in it and through the years they would invite me to different holidays so I wrote for the Times about Rosh Hashanah and I also I kept not slightly updating the recipe but it's so good now of course everybody likes Yemenite soup it's sort of a, a thing you know it's exactly. here it's right in the book oh um I will try it it's delicious it sounds great mm. Chicken soup. It's you know, but that's what their meals were. So when you go in and you sit at people's houses like that, you realize a few things. When these Yemenites came to Israel, they didn't eat sweets. They were very very thin. They had good teeth. Um, and then the Eastern European Jewish or Central European Jewish immigrants wanted to fatten them up, and then they started giving them cheesecakes and all these things oh my that they had never eaten. And, and they were also the ones, the, the Yemenites, that were the, the original falafel makers in Jerusalem and hummus makers. And the falafel around the Middle East very often has fava beans in it. But um, Jews, especially from the Middle East, very often have something called favaism, which is an enzymatic disease, and they can't eat fava beans. So they switched to falafel to have only chickpeas, as, and the same with hummus. I, I read that somewhere. I, I thought one of my books, I hope. <laughs> it's very possible, yeah. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. But and the, and the Yemenites have always been known for real cleanliness. And then when you, well then when you go to an, an Ethiopian home, like the one I, I, I went to, some, uh, to a dinner with young Ethiopian, where I learned to make this um, bread with flour, which is something that they would use for Friday night and Shabbat, but they wouldn't. They would use teff the rest of the week, and there was very little flour in, um, in in Yemen. So what they, I mean, Yemen and Ethiopia, but they were right next to each other. So in the Middle Ages, the the bread basket of the Middle East was in Egypt. So they would bring wheat to uh, Ethiopia and Yemen um, in baskets, you know, through uh, ships. And they'd put some spices in like turmeric and others because they were good for male potency. <laughs> they were the Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> of those days. Of those days. <laughs> well, I and, they would, and, they would, and they would send the wheat for Shabbat. That's why they would send it. So special boats, for special, right? Because right, they they couldn't get it themselves. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule <laughs> to chat with me yes. about all things Jewish food and and to go through your cookbook and share some stories. Much appreciated. I wish you lots of luck with your new book, and and your tour, and maybe uh, our paths will cross at some time I in the hope future. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Big Schmear today. Special thanks go to two friends of The Big Schmear, Fred Plotkin and Steve Robinson. Our recording engineer is Hudson Fair. Our theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Check out thebigschmear.com to download episodes of the podcast, find recipes shared by my guests, and check out the growing list of recommended Jewish food restaurants. That's thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear, and thank you for listening. <laughs>